Too many who know the angles Uncover and untangle All the questions and the webs left out to tangle be in I'm Dapper Dan Gavazdan, and I'm the founder and editor of AmazingSpiderTalk.com, and I own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man, including the annuals. Ooh, and I'm Mischievous Marchinacchio, the founder of the Chasing Amazing blog, author of 100 Things Spider-Man Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die, and I as well own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man, but Dan, those annuals, they do not count. Well, I'll have to take your word for it, Mark. Thanks, everybody out there, for joining us for the 11th episode of the third season of the all-new Amazing Spider Talk. We hope you enjoy this podcast and that it provides an intelligent conversation between two fans and collectors as we look at the Spider-Man comic universe in a bit of a bigger picture. If you want to learn everything we know about Spidey, why not start by subscribing to our show, Back with the First Season? You can enjoy our show on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, or your podcast player of choice. We'd love to have you along for our journey through Spidey's past, present, and future. Just head on over to AmazingSpiderTalk.com for all the details about where to subscribe. In this third season of the all-new Amazing Spider Talk, we've been following our favorite web-slinger through the transition into the Bronze Age, a time period that is known for its darker tone and sometimes outlandish stories. All throughout our third season, we've been discussing the work of artist Ross Andrew, one of the main collaborators alongside uh, Jerry Conway on this run, and often uh, overlooked Spider-Man artists. So we wanted to shine the spotlight on Ross Andrews' work to get to know the man with what little information is actually available and take a look at the unique elements he brought to his artwork. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help us continue while getting amazing bonus content and additional episodes that we never release publicly, go to our show notes and check out our Patreon page and consider joining our team. To that point, we want to issue a special thanks to Timothy Hawk, Daniel Zoller, Connor O'Brien, Stuart Earle, Cameron, Jared Weeks, George Johnston, and Noah Wilkinson for becoming new patrons and supporting the show's existence. All right, Mark, let's get ready to tour around New York City, guided by the master artist, Ross Andrew. Well, Mark, I thought it was appropriate that we spend a whole episode talking about Ross Andrew, I'm sure as did you, because Ross Andrew is so important to the Bronze Age and Jerry Conway's run during this time, but he often gets overlooked, and and I think that's a mistake. You know, it, it's hard to follow up, you know, runs like Dicko and, and, and Romita, and I think 
you know, Ross fell very much into the shadow of those the two master creators. But, you know, he he has his own merits all his own. So like, it's very important, I think, that we start today. And I know he's a favorite of many readers of Spider-Man. It's kind of funny. Like you, you talk about, you know, how underrated he is. And I think, you know, when we talk a little bit more about who he is as the person, we'll, we'll, that might actually kind of become more obvious why that's the case i mean he he was kind of a very quiet humble person and i think you know maybe by not having as much bombast and outlandishness that maybe some other artists tend to have like it's easy to kind of get lost in the mix a bit he he definitely brought a very distinctive style to spider-man basically how he how he name checked a lot of New York City landmarks and and making New York City a character I mean also just just the way he did certain action sequences I mean how how would you best describe it Dan well I think if like Dicko brought the weirdness to the comic and Romita brought the romance Andrew kind of blended the two of those together but grounded it all in realism for the first time like I think he was the right guy for wh- when the book where the book was going which is that the book was looking to both be outlandish, but also ground it in the you know Brown's Age drama that was being brought into the book, and you know I I think he was a, you know instrumental part of that. I I think for me he was the first Spider-Man artist to ever give me like vertigo reading a comic book. I feel like his Spider-Man was never on the ground; he was always in the air or way above everybody up in the top of the buildings. You know that gave it a really distinct visual style. I mean, he he put just a back-breaking amount of effort into creating the realism of this comic. We have some quotes from from Jerry Conway from, you know, interviews he's given that kind of, I feel, even illustrate this better. But yeah, I mean, certainly talking more broadly here, Andrew brought something almost atmospheric to the book that had not been there before. Yeah, I mean, I like I like calling it realism or as, as realistic as, you know, a superhero in spandex who can you know has webs and can you know move at the speed and the strength of a spider can be realistic but at the same token like it it just felt between the fact that like new york was so central to the work that he did as a character to like you say the way he kind of captured spider-man in action it kind of blended these things together and i feel like you know we wouldn't have like the spider-man movies the way we have now without like an artist like Andrew kind of paving the way on, on a two-dimensional format, how to make that look, right? The the like visceral thrill that I get playing the Spider-Man game on PlayStation 4 as I'm hurling this guy through the city, you know, it comes from knowing that wherever I shoot a web, it's going to connect onto a building somewhere. And, you know, you look at Ramita's Spider-Man and he's very like larger-than-life superhero, even though it is still the humble Peter, Par- Peter Parker. But like... I never got the sense that Romita was really that worried about the mechanics of Spider-Man and that like, where does his web go when he shoots it and stuff. But like Andrew, you get the sense that Spider-Man's in a real place. He can't just jump into the air and take off. Like there, there is a web that is connecting somewhere. And if there's not somewhere to connect to Spider-Man's not moving. Like it was a very kind of real guy. And you know, I, I think I think you're right. Like the movies would not exist in the same way without his influence. Kind of going back further, I mean, Dicko to me was kind of when he captured Spider-Man in motion. I mean, it was mo- like he. I felt like Dicko really wanted to play up like the fact that 
he was based off a spider. You know what I mean? Like, like there was something kind of off-putting and creepy, for lack of a better word, about the way Ditko's Spider-Man moved. Andrew embraced the fact that this was a superhero. And, and as his bio will reveal, I mean, Andrew did a lot of work with some of the biggest superheroes of all prior to doing Spider-Man. So it would make sense that he would embrace those elements. But at the same token, like he, he embraced the, the visual and, and the physical dynamic elements that were unique just to Spider-Man. Like it wasn't just like, you know, carbon copy, man in tights kind of superhero visuals, right? No, because uh, his Spider-Man was also posed in very weird ways. I mean, I would say less creepy. He's the first guy to do the kind of like thing that Todd McFarlane would become famous for, which is like pushing him into unbendable patterns. You know, like Andrew was certainly more grounded than that, but like there were some moments where Spider-Man would be doing strange and like almost Doctor Strange, like, you know, hand bending stuff in the air. A unique silhouette to a hero fighting crime. Let's also get a couple of little factoids in there. So Ross Andrew, he was actually born Rusolov Andruskevich. I, I think I got that right. <laughs> I've, not been pra- I've not been practicing my Russian, Dan. I'm sorry. He actually started working professionally in comics in 1948. He did the Tarzan newspaper strip. Now, Tarzan, you know, like that's talk about swinging. I mean, that, you know, so we, we, we get where we got to start there. And then shortly thereafter, he actually started working with his friend and his longtime inker, Mike Esposito, who, who basically inked almost every issue that Andrew did on Spider-Man. I mean, like I mean, Esposito, Esposito more or less followed Andrew from book to book. They were kind of a package deal. I guess think of it like Ron Friends and Brett Breeding, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's even a great episode of Comic Book Men where the the team of like the salespeople on that show try to help uh, Mrs. Esposito auction off Andrew and Esposito's work after uh, they they passed. An interesting memorial episode if you're a fan of that show. He did end up joining uh, the Distinguished Competition in the 1950s. And uh, I mean, he did a a bunch of comics, but he had his primary stint on Wonder Woman for about nine years. And then he actually finished uh, out his his first run at DC doing The Flash. I don't know. For whatever reason, I always kind of, even though they're really not similar to each other. I, I always kind of associate the flash and Spider-Man as similar kind of superheroes. So to me, to me, it makes sense to go from the flash to Spider-Man. I don't know. Is that, am I, am I, am I reaching for that, Dan? <laughs> no, I, I don't think so. I mean, I think a lot of people have even complimented the new flash TV show or new ish flash TV show for being a sort of like Spider-Man analog or Spider-Man formula. Uh, I, I don't think that's too far off of a run, but nevertheless, he would draw Spider-Man. He did a fill in issue for John Romita in 1968. That was actually never published in amazing Spider-Man, but instead was published later in Marvel superheroes number 14. And you know, it's straight out of an amazing Spider-Man comic. It's a story called the reprehensible riddle of the sorcerer. And it introduced this new Maggie, a villain who died in the same story that you'll never hear of ever again unless someone like Nick Spencer digs it out of obscurity. I mean, if you are curious enough to check out the first Andrew work, you can go read that comic and see his first Spider-Man. At this point, Andrew is is quite the veteran of the industry, which is kind of interesting. And and Jerry would talk about this in some of the interviews he did. So when he joined Amazing Spider-Man in 1973, I mean, he was more than twice Jerry Conway's age. And I think that kind of actually end, lended a bit of a... Of a 
very interesting kind of mentory type of relationship there, which, I mean, Jerry also went in our interview with him last season, he, he indicated he got from John Ramita as well. So, so Jerry's always been very blessed, I think, to work with some very sage-like artists in his time with Amazing Spider-Man, for sure. You know, alongside Jerry Conway, they created a lot of like great comics and even a ton of characters. Andrew is uh, gets some credit for co-creating The Punisher, even though that was really a, a John Ramita visual creation with Jerry providing some of the schematics initially, but he did also create like rocket racer and the big wheel and even like jigsaw who, you know, you, you think of as a daredevil villain, but really his first appearance was here in the pages of amazing Spider-Man. You know, on top of that, like, I mean, he, he got to work in some of the, well, the, I shouldn't say the original X-Men, but the all new X-Men, like, like, like nightcrawler shows up uh, during his run kind of early. It's like an early appearance of nightcrawler. Uh, and then like, you know, we, we, we did an episode earlier this season where we kind of poke fun at the Bronze Age villains and some of their absurdities. But like at the same token, like these are very visually unique creations, people like Cyclone and the Grizzly and Mindworm. And, and these are all Andrew creations. I mean, like he, you know, for someone that we talked about a few minutes ago being grounded in realism. I mean, these villains are kind of, are kind of out there. Uh, and he clearly had some fun in creating them. You know, either way, like these villains, I think a lot of them just come from kind of like a, a silly place inside of Jerry Conway's mind. But like, even look, look at like a, you know, Mindworm, for example, like this is a guy that's grounded as well. Like he may look crazy, but he's wearing like board shorts, you know, in the way that Ross Andrew drew him, you know, like he's just kind of a beach bum. And that I think is kind of like an interesting stamp of Andrews on some of these characters. Yeah. You know, we haven't really talked about this issue a bunch over the years on this show, Dan, but, you know, arguably one of the most famous moments in comics that Andrew was a part of was the Superman versus the Amazing Spider-Man crossover one-shot comic from 1976. I mean, now this was the very first intercompany crossover. I mean, so, I mean, like this was... Dogs and cats together, you know, calamity, chaos ensuing. You know, Jerry Conway in subsequent interviews talked about, the, you know, basically being Ross's masterpiece. Now, Jerry Conway scripted the book. Ross got so much credit for doing was kind of towing the line. I mean, we had these two very distinct, iconic heroes and Superman and Spider-Man that needed to work together in one story. And in addition to like giving them both these like visual moments, like, like Superman is obviously he's a, he's a, you know, a pre-World War II hero. Spider-Man is more modern and yet they visually worked together throughout the whole thing. Like it didn't, neither one looked out of place in this comic book. And that is all due to how Andrew rendered and, and manipulated this book to make it look like it was a natural, a natural fit, a natural crossover that like that, you know, that nobody was out of place. Plus it features one of his trademarks, which is the Empire State Building being featured on the cover as the two kind of duke it out on top of the building. An interesting factoid that I discovered when researching Andrew is that, you know, during his time on the book, and, and this is something you can kind of look into if you're curious, you know, Marvel had started this kind of quickly ended initiative that had, you know, Andrew drawing two pages of art on one original artboard. So he kind of has this unique, weird thing. If you look at his pages where you can see in some of the double page spreads in issues uh, 131, 
133 to 136 and 139 that they used one page of art to do two pages in the comic. And it was meant to cut costs, but it didn't change the bottom line. So Marvel canceled this initiative, but like it meant that Andrew had to kind of work on the books being paid less. And so, you know, you can still see the level of detail in all of the splashes. And it's like, here's a guy that's really taken one for the team and still putting his all into it, despite being kind of uh, treated poorly by Marvel. On the lighter side, Andrew did a number of the Hostess fruit pie ads. <laughs> I did not know this. You, 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 you dug this one out, Dan. That's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, the most famous one being one from Daredevil number 121, which, which features like Spider-Man webbing up a bunch of villains to get their fruit pies, you know, the, the hostess fruit pies that have become so famous over the years and even were featured in Spider-Verse, the big crossover there. So it's funny that like, yeah, it was Andrew's work that they were pulling from. Another little interesting note, there is a letter in Amazing Spider-Man number 166 from none other than Frank Miller, who before he you know started talking about dystopian conspiracies, he wanted to commend Andrew for being the quote unquote the most conscientious Spider-Man artist. Yeah, and this is all the way back when he was like nineteen or twenty years old. So it's always fun to look back through those issues and see like really famous creators kind of writing in to commend people that inspired them. And so I wouldn't think it's too much of a stretch to say that Andrew was uh, an inspiration on Miller in some way enough that he wrote a letter in to commend him for being. The most conscientious Spider-Man artist, whatever that means. <laughs> and then uh, also a lot of uh, Andrew's work ended up being used on the Electric Company show, another topic that we covered earlier this season. Yeah, yeah. And then, uh, Mark, what would he do after his time at Marvel? Well, he, he did eventually go back in the late 70s to D.C., and that's where he served as an editor. And actually, he ended up mentoring a young Alex Saviak uh, working on The Flash, back on The Flash again. That's where Alex obviously got a lot of his artistic inspiration from, which, and then, of course, Alex would go on to illustrate Spider-Man in, AS, uh, in ASM and in Web of, and then also the daily comic strip that the daily newspaper strip that we talked about earlier. So everything coming full circle for season three, Dan. <laughs> Jerry has talked about Andrew's work a number of times, as you mentioned. Can can you tell us a little bit about what Jerry said about Andrew and in, in some of the interviews that you read? We we had Jerry on so much over the last couple of seasons. We could have probably could have gotten him to come back to say this stuff a second time, but. You know, let's just quote it from other interviews. He referred to Andrew as being more of a writing partner. I mean, he he, he talked about that age difference and kind of uh, Andrew's experience. But, he, you know, he also referred to Andrew as being kind of very quiet and humble and polite and, and just kind of a true professional to work with. And it sounded like he and Jerry, you know, they would sit down over coffee and and hash out plots and you know kind of like the old like stan and and jr stuff you know stan would just kind of like talk through stuff out loud and then andrew would take the notes and and turn it into a story and 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 it would just be exactly what jerry was talking about i mean it it, it you know that that old marvel marvel house style i guess it just kind of finds a way to, to to work from generation to generation one of the things that jerry also talked about a lot was and what we talked about earlier in this episode was the physics of ross andrew spider-man he talked about it in terms of like 
how Ross used height and distance and perspective. And then also he talked about, and I like the, the phraseology of this, the centrifugal force of web slinging. And I think that's the best way to put it, right? Because that's really what it is. It's like you, like you said, like you, you get the sense of someone actually shooting a web and then having to swing from that web, which you just didn't quite get the physics of that from earlier iterations of Spider-Man. I also really like how uh, Ross Andrew would create like three dimensionality in his work. I mean, it, it seems really obvious in the way that he draws buildings and renders perspectives, but even just layering Spider-Man over multiple layers of art or lines would cause the villains and Spider-Man to kind of pop out of the pages and in, in a way that I don't think that Ramita and Dicko are thinking about all the time, like this kind of three dimensionality, their styles were more like, you know, typical cartoon style. Uh, reading through Andrew's stuff, like he really knows how to force perspective to make the characters jump out. And I, I found that like always fascinating. His work just seems like it, there's a whole world inside the page of each comic. The other big thing, and we've talked about this a lot over the course of this episode so far, was the fact that Ross was very specific about getting New York City as a character into these comics as much as possible. And, and you know, when, when you go back to earlier Amazing Spider-Man, certainly there was, you know, the Statue of Liberty and like, you know, other major, major icons would kind of pop up from time to time. To me, they kind of felt almost obligatory, like like just a total name check of like, oh, yeah, we're in New York. Here's the Empire State Building. Uh, Here's the Statue of Liberty. I mean, you know, but like the way that Andrew kind of brings it in is a lot more elegant and organic, in my opinion. Like, you know, like you, you would just be and we'll get into detail in a few minutes here. But like, you know, you would just kind of be, you know, perusing the panels and then all of a sudden you would see a major uh, iconic landmark from New York City just in the midst there not not like not even like trying to be as a major plot beat I mean there were some that were used as major plot beats but there's some some they were just kind of integrated so nonchalantly that it was kind of a wonder to see it as a New Yorker so the way Jerry actually put it in his one of his interviews was that he felt that he was the first Spider-Man artist to make Spidey's New York reflect the actual city of New York physically Jerry and uh, Ross, you know, kind of were admittedly both big fans of New York City itself. They were both residents here. So that was, uh, you know, I think for Jerry, it almost became a bit of a game to how many times he can get references, you know, get Ross to put a reference in uh, visually uh, into his work. And Ross would just go around New York taking pictures and then using that to straight draw, you know, into the comics, these things. So he was planning it out in a way that like few other artists I think ever have. And I think it's unlikely to see these days. I mean, now everybody can just go online and look up images. And a lot of our artists that are doing these books don't live in New York anymore, but here was a New Yorker traveling around New York, taking pictures of places to match them up perfectly in the books. And there are several forums online that, uh, you know, if you're so interested that try to get, you know, it's like almost like a, a geocaching or whatever, where people go around New York and try to match up a photo exactly to what Andrew was doing, uh, or where he was standing when he decided to draw, you know, different panels in the book. And it's quite, quite remarkable because it is one-to-one exact. And 
you know, even stuff that's less iconic than say like the empire state building, there'll just be a street corner in a page of amazing Spider-Man that didn't need to be a reference, but it'll be like some exact street corner from New York. And you're like, okay, I guess, I guess that's a real place. And, and that was the real thing. It was, it made it feel like a real place. It wasn't just generic warehouses and skyscrapers. And that's not to put down Dick over Ramita who are both fantastic artists but like the just the level of detail and the attention to detail and 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 the the passion to really bring out the true grit of new york it, it just can't be understated of course there's like we just said all the new york locations right marvel is the world outside your window and ross andrew is the man outside your window drawing it you're right he has a bunch of other things that uh he was doing to kind of set himself aside. My favorite of which being that he's like one of the first guys to really kind of popularize. I think the multiple drawings of Spider-Man on one page to show his movement through an environment. Like he would do this a lot. Yeah. It was like Spider-Man in like three or four different poses, but like kind of like, not silhouette. Is it considered silhouetted? I mean, how how would you describe the effect? It's like the translucent, I guess. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like you know, it's 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 to capture that motion. I mean, like I I think my favorite is the the tarantula fight from the um the original Clone Saga that we had talked about uh, a few episodes ago. I mean, that's I mean he did a, he, it. Andrew does it a lot, but to me, that's one of the more distinct ones. Now, obviously, if you want to talk about major visual iconic moments of course and we talked about this earlier this season there is the kiss between peter and mary jane which of course was also at jfk airport and like that terminal like i mean like he captures the terminal down to the detail you got planes out on the runway behind them i mean like a lot of detail beyond just this very iconic image of peter and mj kissing and creating the villain we know as kindred (laughs) speaking of like you know (laughs) I said, you let that one go, Dan. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that, that's it, everybody. Well, we'll put a pin on that one. You know, while we're talking about that kiss, I, I, guess, I think it's important to kind of like, I'd love to talk about very briefly his Spider-Man and Peter Parker and how he drew those, those characters. Like to me, his Spider-Man was like kind of where you want the character to be. It's like both lithe and muscular at the same time and able to pose in all of these contorted ways. And his Peter was like handsome, but still like tortured, like especially in the way that he drew Peter's eyes. I mean, there are a number of issues that Andrew drew where Peter looks like he's like a demon here. He's like haunted by something, you know, he, he could draw really like tormented faces. This Ross Andrew guy. Yeah, which is kind of funny that you mentioned that because like in one of the, the Jerry interviews, he did say like one of the criticisms that, that Ross would get was that some people would sometimes write into Marvel complaining about his, his faces. I agree with you. I feel that they were very expressive, but maybe it was just a little too little too real for some. I don't know. <laughs> like to see after having so much, like you say, glamour from Romita all those years, I guess having something with a little more grit to it like Andrew was a bit of a shock for some. The issue where, you know, Ross Andrew did the cover where Peter was supposed to graduate from ESU and he ultimately doesn't because of like a PE credit that he didn't have. The cover of it has like uh, that. It's almost like ASM number 50 where Spider-Man's silhouette is looking over Peter as he's graduating. I think this is kind of like, you know, to, to the face credit, you know, Aunt Ross Andrew had drawn the Spider-Man there on the cover, but it looked like it was grimacing at Peter. And so Marvel called up Ramita to kind of redraw the cover. And so if you look at that cover, it's a Ramita mask 
past Spider-Man because Romita literally redid the cover for Andrew. And I feel like his Spider-Man in mask was always a unique thing. The, the face didn't always match up and he was often grimacing looking or he was always kind of like uh, haggard in some way. And I, that's what really set it apart for me. But I think they decided on that cover it ultimately looked too menacing for what was supposed to be a happy moment. So do we want to get to our tour of New York or are there any other big Ross moments that you want to talk about? No, I think, I think the biggest Ross moment of them all is how Ross guided us through New York city, through the pages of his comics. So, you know, but, but, but here we go. We're going to take a tour of New York as guided by Ross Andrew. But I have to say this before, you know, I even get into it. You're, you know, you're a resident of New York and, I lived there for five years. You know, when I first came to New York, like I found my way around, I think using Ross Andrew, like uh, my introduction to the city and why I wanted to move there, I think was because of how I had seen it rendered in pages of these comics. And I don't think anybody quite brought it to life like Ross Andrew and a a number of the, we're we're each going to choose five of our favorite references that he did. But for me, it's like, these are all ones that like, it was Andrew that like basically introduced me to all of these places. I don't know if I would go that far (laughs) from my own experience, but like, I think we talk a lot about New York as a character. And I mean, I've said it like 11 times in this episode already. I'm just going to say it again. Um, But like, I, I, I truly, when I think of those visual moments, when I, you know, to make a statement like that, I'm almost always thinking of, the Ross Andrew run with with Cherry and then later with Lemween is kind of like what what demonstrates that. I mean, it's it's this idea that like you know I feel like with with most artists before and and to a certain extent after. Although I felt like Andrew certainly afterwards gave artists more permission to to visually capture the city the way he did. But I just feel like New York, it could have it could have just have been Metropolis or Gotham. You know, there was it, there was something kind of general and generic about it and fictitious, for lack of a better word. And and Andrew really made New York pop off the page. And and preparation for this episode, Dan, I, I, I you know, went back through all these issues again and, and tried to find as many references as I could. And I and I'm sure I missed a ton because there's just, you know, like there's just so much. And like you said, there's there are random street corners that probably don't even look that way anymore. <laughs> if we, if I, so I wouldn't even know what I'm looking at. But like there was also plenty of landmarks like like not just the like you said, the big stuff that that you automatically assume as part of New York, like, oh, it's the Empire State Building, it's the Statue of Liberty, it's the Brooklyn Bridge. But like these these little visual buildings where I I when I was looking on the page, I'm like, wait, I know that. Where is that? And then I'm like, I'm like, I was like, actually, like, then working on Google being like, that's what it is, because <laughs> it's like, I know I walk by that building. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a, it, it, it's, it's, it's a delight to kind of, you know, this was a delight to put together this little, this little list, if you will. I mean, I don't know. Do we want I mean, do we want to put some of these references in the show notes? Maybe would that be something fun? So it's not completely I, a wash. I think or? we should do that. I'm smelling an article coming, Mark. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You have like a list of like 26 here, you know, and I think you're right. I think it's just scratching the surface. You know, we're going to talk about 10 of these and that's not even the scratching the surface of our list. 
why don't we go chronologically? And I think the first one is actually from you, Dan. So why don't you talk a little bit about it? Yeah, um, this is from Amazing Spider-Man number 134. This is a, an issue that I like a lot. It's it's an issue involving the tarantula where, you know, Peter goes on this kind of like tour around the harbor on a boat out of the Chelsea Piers, which is what we see, you know, Andrew depicting here. And, and that's really fun. And this also happens to be the one where MJ is dating Brad Davis, the quarterback that is never mentioned ever again, and yet inexplicably found his way into becoming a major character in Spider-Man Far From Home. This is a, this is a fun issue for me because like Tarantula basically takes over the 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 boat that they're on, and Spider-Man has to use the kind of like features of the West Side of Manhattan to kind of swing on and off the boat to defeat Tarantula and. And you really get a sense of the space and the vulnerability of Spider-Man in this. And Andrew, you know, puts it really amazingly. And I think Andrew had a ton of fun drawing Tarantula. I I, I think it's the best depiction of this character. And uh, yeah, this is a fun one for me. So that's Amazing Spider-Man number 134. You know, it's funny that you say that with Tarantula because, you know, Jerry Conway obviously has talked many times over over the years about the fondness he has for Tarantula and kind of now putting all the pieces together in terms of Jerry's fondness for Ross Andrew as a, as a collaborator and just the amount of fun Andrew clearly had illustrating Tarantula. You got to wonder if that's maybe where all this mutual fondness is coming from, right? Yeah. I mean, it's just a cool setup. You know, it's the kind of issue we don't get anymore, which is like, let's exploit one unique thing about New York and set a story around it. Right. Which is like, what do you do when you're stuck on a Harbor cruise and a, you know, a villain, takes it over like a terrorist, you know, we don't really get those kind of like stuck in the subway stuff anymore. And this is a fun kind of yesteryear kind of story. My first reference is from Amazing Spider-Man number 136, which is more famously the first Harry uh, Osborne as Green Goblin Spider-Man fight. But there is this very kind of lovely little sequence early in the issue where Peter and MJ are out on a date. They're strolling like young lovers do. Young lovers, one getting over the tragic death of his earlier girlfriend. And <laughs> like, they're kind of like, they're licking an ice cream cone and they're walking here and there. And then like, just, just in the background, look very nonchalantly, but beautifully rendered is St. Patrick's Cathedral, which is just this hugely ornate building in midtown manhattan and like it just it's so striking to me like to me this like this is the this is ross andrew and how he integrated the city in a nutshell it's like you know he didn't have to put saint patrick's cathedral into the scene it could have just been a random coffee shop or just some random brownstone or whatever that you know from uh, or an apartment building from New York City. And instead he took like this very ornate, detailed, architecturally uh, masterful building and put it right smack in the middle of this panel. And then in the very next panel, it's gone. So like, you know, like, like that panel, you know, could, could, could probably serve as like a work of art for someone that loves St. Patrick's Cathedral and loves Spider-Man and wanted to have them all together. But instead it's just kind of there and gone, kind of the way it is when you live in New York City. Cause like when you live here every day and, and, or go to work every day, you walk by stuff that is historically or culturally significant and you kind of start taking it for granted. And that's, that's to me kind of what I feel we have here. It's this 
oh, there's St. Patrick's. And now, you know, now all of a sudden Harry Osborne's throwing pumpkin bombs and we got to do stuff. It's, it's, <laughs> it's the old adage of uh, you can tell the tourists because they're the ones that are still looking up. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so spe- speaking of which and looking up, what, what about your next one? The next one, I mean, this is this is even quicker glance and you'll miss it kind of a thing. But I, I again, I love that element of it, which is from Amazing Spider-Man number 138, which is one of the Spider-Man versus the Grizzly issues. Very famous issue. Spider-Man is, is web-slinging around trying to hunt down the Grizzly after he attacked J. Jonah Jameson. And he just whizzes by the side of the Chrysler building. Now, the Chrysler building, I mean, to me, the... You know, Empire State Building is the taller of these two skyscrapers that have the big pointy needles in New York City. But the Chrysler Building is probably the more visually interesting one, especially the the, the side panels of it, the the that that glass um, kind of almost like diamond esque facade of it. And similar to what I said about St. Patrick's, it's to me it's amazing that. The visual is Spider-Man sling is web slinging like 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 that that alone is where the action is. You don't necessarily need to bring anything else to that panel to make it any more or less dramatic. And the fact that like Andrew just very kind of quietly make not even the whole Chrysler building, but just like one corner of it <laughs> into the panel again I when I was going through these comics to prepare for this issue I almost missed it the first time and I had to go back I was like wait a second that's the Chrysler building and I like I had no idea that that's how he would work that in and I I, I just thought that was brilliant that's so cool so you, you have another one here chronologically this one's really personal to you yeah okay so and we talked about this I think when we talked about the clone saga as well so if I'm repeating anything I apologize but yes Issue 149, the big epic final battle where Ned Leeds is tied up between by the Jackal and Spider-Man is fighting himself. What's 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 the what's the title of it? It's even if I win, I die. Yeah. Or, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but the battle takes place at the home of or the the former home of my precious New York Mets, Shea Stadium, and then the whole thing gets blown to bits at the end, and yet. The Mets just kept playing there, regrettably, especially in the 70s. They were so bad in the 70s. Days, so. <laughs> Some would say they never fully repaired that stadium. They, they never truly did. I mean, you know, until until the until the 80s when they would bring it down for real. But like it, it's a, I, I just loved, again, kind of staying true to the canon that is Peter Parker is a Met fan. And don't you ever forget it. You know, I think there were a couple of people who tried to put him in a Yankee hat once, and that's just ridiculous. I, I love that, you know, the Queens boy had to do a big f- battle against himself at the Queens baseball stadium. So uh, I just had to shout that out. It's just natural, natural. Well, speaking of natural, we're going to move on to the next one, which is Amazing Spider-Man number 166. And Mark, this holds a special place between you and I, which is that like <laughs> our relationship was formed on the back of this issue, which we had even a Christmas special on this issue a few years ago. And it is the one where Spider-Man fights Stegron, the dinosaur man at the museum of natural history and specifically the dinosaur exhibit. And I got to think that Andrew just wandered around this building, taking pictures of all the rooms and exhibits, etc., to bring this thing to life because it is like photo accurate, you know, no matter how insane the comic itself is, 
enough to you know have me bug you every week to write an ep- uh, an, an article about it for those who have followed us for that long of a time. He renders it in, 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 in realism and it even expands into Central Park where we get the kind of classic bridges of Central Park, which ultimately Stegron slips into the ice in dramatic style, frozen in time, never to be seen ever again. That's not true. But that <laughs> moment is a haunting one, which I believe Stegron joined us on the show to reenact at some point. Yeah, you know, Amazing <laughs> Spider-Man number 166, a, a all-time classic, and don't let anybody tell you otherwise. Don't let mother tell you otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I, I feel like I'm sucking all the air out of the room here, but it's just, you know, again, the chronological. I, I, I just want to throw out uh, Amazing Spider-Man number 167. There's actually a ton of cues, and, and, and we should totally tie 167 together, 168, similar to the Stegron issues. Cause, so these are the first Will-O-Wisp stories. We get some MS, uh, some Madison Square Garden, St. Patrick's Cathedral again, but then, you know, there's this big fight in the first issue that spills over to the next between Spider-Man and Will-O-Wisp where... They, they go to 30 Rockefeller Plaza, a.k.a. 30 Rock, which is where they shoot Saturday Night Live, among other things. And by the way, around this time, Marvel actually had a good relationship with the cast of Saturday Night Live. There was that whole Marvel team up where <laughs> Spider-Man teamed up with the not ready for primetime players. So, I mean, I almost wonder if that was part of what got that worked in at this point they they fought on the very famous rockefeller center ice skating rink where the christmas tree gets set up every year and like you know again like being in new york that's such a such a visually iconic place it's 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 a it's a meeting place it's a mecca for a lot of people people every year want to go to that rink you know to the rink to see the tree to do this uh so just kind of seeing it laid out there but like not as like a little romantic like it wasn't peter and mj ice skating but it's like P- spider-man fighting this kind of odd villain i just thought like that was really interesting use of of, of how to work that in and i don't think i had seen rockefeller center in prior to that so you know i just had to tip my hat to that to that integration of that well one of the next one i'm going to do is one that's like constantly featured in Amazing Spider-Man, you know, as the meeting place of Spider-Man and the Human Torch. That's in Amazing Spider-Man number 175. There's a battle on the Statue of Liberty, well, on the cover and and inside, I believe it's the one where Hitman and his kind of like bunch of stooges or whatever are fighting Spider-Man on, uh, on that statue. And it's, you know, it's an odd use of that space because boy, how are you going to catch that barge? to get out there to then get up on the statue and fight someone. <laughs> it, it's pretty elaborate. You know, th- there's also the Brooklyn Bridge on the inside, which is definitively the uh, Brooklyn Bridge <laughs> this time. Yes, it's, yes, it's not yeah. the, any other bridge. But yeah, uh, so that that's another really cool issue. And I, I like, you know, the Statue of Liberty is overused in terms of like how it's integrated in movies. But in comics, like this is a fun use of it for like a kind of like mob battle and also they like use like the inside of the crown and stuff like 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 they even in something that's get used a lot it's used differently and in, in a creative way here i think which is worth noting right all, all of the bad guys have to cram themselves inside of a very small walk space <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> these stairs they're killing me also i wanted to shout out to amazing spider-man number 179 which i think this one's really cool how it's done because this is the fight with the third Green Goblin Bart Hamilton I believe so this is Spider-Man fighting Bart Hamilton but at the Radio City Music Hall 
So like you get the marquee, but then it goes like in and outside of the music hall. And even the Spider-Man, the animated series from the nineties would kind of borrow from this visual and do a big hobgoblin scene there. I believe Venom as well. So there would be this big Radio City music hall thing. But like you really get the sense of the kind of like threat of the airborne menace in this issue, because like these two guys are fighting over crowds of people below them in this kind of very packed, crowded space. And it's a great integration of a New York City location into the comic book. The last one from me that I'm going to mention is from Amazing Spider-Man number 182. And the reason why I wanted to mention this was because this was one of those instances where I saw the visual and I knew it was something famous. I knew it was something I've seen a bunch of times in my life and I couldn't quite pick up on what and where it was until I, I did some research and found out it's actually, you see Rocket Racer coming out down the street through an arch and the arch is the facade of the municipal building, which is like down by Chamber Street or, or by the courthouse down in Lower Manhattan. And that's the thing. Like I'm like, I'm looking at this and it's this very architecturally classical looking archway. And I'm like, well, it's not Washington Square because I knew I know what that looks like. And then I was like wondering, wait, is that the, the arch that is down by the Manhattan Bridge by uh, Chinatown going into into Brooklyn? And it's like, nope, it's not that either. So what am I looking at here? And then, like I said, it's this, it's this other, the other famous arch. It's like, how many famous arches are in New York? Apparently more than just those two. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I, I, I just liked that that one got worked in and then the sea rocket racer kind of, you know, shooting out of it on his skateboard was pretty cool too. Rocket racer is a, such a Ross Andrew villain, if, if you will, if you want to call him a villain, because he really takes advantage of what Ross Andrew likes to do, which is the kind of like vertigo of being on the sides of buildings. I mean, those drawings are always so fascinating to me to see him, you know, and, and Ross Andrew utilizing the kind of like fire trail of the rocket racer. So you get these like hard right angles as he's kind of like angling his way around the surface of buildings. I always thought he was a cool looking villain as done by Andrew. So my final one is going to be not from Amazing Spider-Man, but from Giant Size Spider-Man number two, which was actually written by Len Wein, not Jerry Conway. And this one is like a, it's a Giant Size Spider-Man and Master of Kung Fu Shang-Chi, soon to be featured in an MCU movie. The book starts off with Spider-Man fighting against the White Dragon and his goons outside of the Guggenheim building. And this was the first time I think that I ever was aware of the weirdness of the Guggenheim as a kid, like the, the strange curved outside of that building. And, you know, Andrew renders it perfectly here. And it's such a great place for like a Spider-Man fight and robbery is this kind of very architecturally strange building like the Guggenheim, which stands out in New York. Uh, I thought that was very cool and, and worth mentioning that. Not everything was so rigid and right angly with uh, Ross Andrew. He really could do the strange, you know, stuff as well. The Guggenheim is certainly not a not an easy thing to visually capture, and and that scene says it all. I've actually I I've not seen that comic prior to this, so that's 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 a pretty cool find, Dan. Mark, that's our tour through New York. You know, get off the tour bus and come back down to Planet Earth, everybody. You know, Ross Andrew. Maybe we shouldn't be coming back down to planet Earth since we're talking about Ross Andrew here. We should be soaring through the skies. I think in terms of legends, that's where Ross Andrew kind of fits for us, which is he is one of the the soaring Spider-Man artists. Well, thanks for joining us for our 11th episode of our third season of the all-new Amazing Spider Talk. Dan, 
What's coming down the pike next for our show? Yeah, just in time for the final issue to be released, we're going to be releasing part one of our Absolute Carnage reviews. I've kind of released issue number one already just as a tease for people, but if you missed that or you want to get it caught up again, where this part one of Review Roundup is going to cover issue one and issue two of Absolute Carnage with guests Alan Churchill and Xavier Mendoza from the Godzilla Mendoza YouTube page. So if you're a fan of his on YouTube. He's going to be joining our show for the first time. Also, for our Patreon subscribers, be sure to check out our Patreon page and your podcast feed this week for a special review of Amazing Spider-Man number 33. There's no better place to join on the Patreon bandwagon than to join us for our exciting coverage of the Nick Spencer run and the mega event Absolute Carnage. Remember, for just $3.99 a month, the price of a new comic, you'll get access to our exclusive new issue reviews, b-book reviews, extended interviews, mailbags, and more. And for $10 or more a month, you'll get access to some awesome commissioned artwork this season from Barry Kitson. Also, be sure to check out our sister show, The Untold Talks to Spider-Man. Plus, we've also got the amazing Spider-Slack community for you to join. Just check out this episode's description for a link to join our Spider-Man talking community. And a special thank you to Rick Coast, our amazing, spectacular, adjectiveless web of editor who cut together this very episode. Rick, why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself and where we can find your work? Thanks, Dan. This is Rick, and you can find my work at modernaudiodrama.com. Uh, you can also go to rickcoast.com, and there's links to my audio shows, audio fiction, the superhero audio drama Inhale, as well as The Behemoth. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter at Rick Coast. That's R-I-C-K-C-O-S-T-E. Thanks. Awesome. Thanks again, Rick. And Mark, where can we find you online this week? Of course, you can find me on Twitter at ChasingASMblog. You can always find my book. It's a great holiday gift. 100 Things Spider-Man Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die, Wherever Books Are Sold. Dan, where can we find you? I'm the same place, not on your handle, Mark, but I am at at SupSpiderTalk uh, on Twitter. Just come on over and say hi and follow me for all kinds of spider goodness. And maybe one day I will Dr. Octopus my way into Mark's brain and take over his Twitter handle. Whoa, that's kind of creepy, but... You know, that doesn't that doesn't sound like the responsible thing to do, though, Dan. Well, you know, one of the things that happened to Dr. Octopus when he switched brains with Peter Parker is that he was suddenly imbued with all of these messages from Peter Parker's life that changed him and made him into the superior Spider-Man. And maybe I will become the superior Mark Janakia when I download all of the phrases that I need to remember and mottos that would inform my life. So, Mark, what might I have imprinted on my new brain if I were to swap with you? Holy cow, that is some intro. Well, Dan, I think the most important thing that you would have downloaded would be to know with great podcasts must also come the all-new Amazing Spider Talk. Don't, don't miss the next installment of-